You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Getting up to give a talk on the regulative principle after listening to Ligon Duncan preach is kind of like getting up to play Purple Haze after Jimi Hendrix has just been giving a solo, but I will endeavor to do my best on a topic that I have learned much from our brother about. The World Series has just taken place, so I've been thinking about baseball, and I've been thinking about the umpire's manual. The umpire's manual for Major League Baseball is 158 pages long. It is full of regulations that govern the game. It's not thrilling reading. And sadly, it has no power to turn my beloved New York Mets into a winning team. They will forever be the lovable losers. And yet, the umpire's manual is there for a reason. It ensures that the game is played the way it's meant to be played. Now, you might ask, is it overly strict to have such a long rule book? Is this too severe? I actually think most baseball players and fans would argue the opposite. They would tell you baseball is a beautiful game because it is a regulated game. It's not drudgery to play according to the book. In fact, it's liberating to know that you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You're upholding the beauty of the game's design. If you remove the regulations, the thing actually dissolves into anarchy. It's not true baseball at all. Today, I want to encourage us to think of the regulative principle of corporate worship a little bit like this baseball umpire's manual. Here's the point of the talk. The regulative principle isn't just true, it's good. The regulative principle leads not to drudgery, but to liberty. It ensures the joy of worshiping the true God according to his good design. So I'm going to briefly define the regulative principle, and I'm just going to briefly offer a few arguments for it. That'll be the first half of the talk. And then I want to reflect on two aspects of why the regulative principle is so valuable and good for our corporate worship together. So those two aspects will be the second half. So first half, what is the regulative principle of corporate worship? It is simply a recognition that Scripture governs what the church should and should not do when it gathers. For something to be included in a church service, it must have warrant in Scripture, either by explicit command or implicit example. So here's how John Hooper put it in 1550. He said, nothing should be used in the church which has not either the express word of God to support it or otherwise is a thing indifferent in itself. And that last bit about indifferent things is really important because sometimes as soon as you bring up this topic, as one is prone to do at around 8.30 in the evening on a Thursday night at a a worship conference, who else is talking about this right now? Well, we are. And sometimes when you talk about the regulative principle, people protest that the regulative principle can't be valid because the Bible doesn't tell us if we should meet at 10 or 11. It doesn't tell us if we should meet inside or outside, if we should sing in the key of C or, or the key of, of D. So to, to say that we must order all of our worship by the word, well, that just can't be true. 
But those sorts of questions aren't what the regulative principle is really speaking to. To use Hooper's word, those things are indifferent. So what I want to do is give you three terms, elements, forms, and circumstances. And this can help break down what folks have meant over the centuries when we've talked about the regulative principle. Elements are the activities that Scripture positively calls us to do in our corporate devotion to God. And the regulative principle is primarily concerned with addressing the question of what elements of worship has God ordained. And the way the Reformers have summarized the the main elements are to read the Word, as we've just been hearing about, sing the Word, pray the Word, preach the Word, and see the Word. See the Word depicted and summarized in the ordinances. And by the way, those happen to be the five main sessions of this conference. So you can see that we are seeking to follow that template. The forms, then, are the manner in which we go about implementing these core elements. Should we read corporately or responsively? Should we read it a chapter at a time or a few verses at a time? Should we sing in the major or minor key? Should we use instruments and which ones? Should we pray extemporaneously or use pre-written prayers or both? These are all the sorts of questions of form, and they're not unimportant. You know, these are questions that the regulative principle would urge us to seek biblical wisdom while recognizing there can be flexibility. Different Christians who who love the Lord Jesus Christ and, and read their Bibles and seek wisdom in the Word may come to a different judgment on some of these formal questions. There can be flexibility across time and across different cultures. And then circumstances refers to the, the more indifferent aspects of how a church organizes its, its, its meeting, when and where to meet, the color of the chairs, whether we use air conditioning or not. Such questions are issues of prudence, not biblical requirement. And my, my point in this talk is not to open up a debate about what exactly or not exactly should or shouldn't be done in a service My point is that when we have that debate, we should all have it from the same posture. And the regulative principle gives us that posture. Once we've adopted this posture, sure, we can lovingly disagree with one another over forms and circumstances, but when it comes to the central elements of worship, the regulative principle shows us when we try to think about what it is that we should do On the Lord's Day, when God's people gather, it's not like we're approaching a whiteboard that's blank, you know, and figuring out, now, what do we want to write on this? What do you want to do first and then second and third? No, actually, God has already written on that board in permanent ink the broad strokes of how we are to engage with Him corporately. And and this involves our shepherding of people that we love. So when Susie or Sam comes to you and says, I would like for us to have a puppet show on Sunday, or I think we should set up painting stations or do a drama, or we should regularly substitute an open dialogue for the sermon. These are well-intended proposals given by people who we love, and the regulative principle offers us a framework for evaluating and lovingly shepherding folks through these ideas. It it motivates us to ask, well, is this suggested practice a biblically mandated element of worship? If it's not, then you're going to have to try to sneak it in by arguing that it is a form of one of the biblically mandated elements. 
You see, so you, there's, there can be some conversation about forms, but the point is that our conversation is structured around the greater question of how can we conform our worship to what Scripture commands. That's what the regulative principle does. It really sets our framing question for corporate worship so that we don't begin by asking, well, what would we like to do? Or what do we assume would reach people? Rather, we begin by asking, what has God called us to do? And the hope is over the the main sessions that we have, as we've just heard from our brother Ligon on reading the Word, we will hear what God's Word calls us to do during this conference on these five central elements. Enough for, for a definition. What's the biblical basis for this regulative principle? Uh, like the word Trinity, you're not going to find this term in the Bible, but you will find this concept in the Bible. So I'm just going to briefly summarize by giving three scripture passages, and each is linked up with a quick theological argument. And seriously, for more on the biblical basis of the regulative principle, Ligon Duncan's two chapters in the book, Give Praise to God, are an excellent place to start. Lots more material there for you to think about. But first, turn with me to Exodus 32, verse 5. You'll remember this tragic incident of the golden calf. And I just want to point us to verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh, all caps. This is the argument from idolatry. In this chapter, we see that Yahweh, the one true God, does not approve of his people worshiping him it seems, in the form of this golden statue. And thus we learn that the second commandment from Exodus 20 isn't merely a restriction about not worshiping wrong gods. It also forbids worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Sincerity isn't enough to make our worship acceptable to God. You know, the problem with paying homage to Yahweh, using a golden calf wasn't lack of sincerity. Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, the only way to avoid tainting our worship with potentially idolatrous human ideas is to worship according to God's Word alone, thus the regulative principle. So that's the argument from idolatry. Second, flip all the way over to John 4. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, in verse 24, he famously says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this is the argument from the doctrine of God. Our worship must be consistent with God's true nature, and it must correspond with the truth he has revealed. And in this passage, Jesus actually corrects the Samaritan woman's thinking about where to worship, thus indicating that there is a right and a wrong way to worship and that Jesus cares about it. God is transcendent. God is incomprehensible. We can't figure him out. We can't find our way to him. 
So then why would we trust our own invented ideas for how to praise him? All we know about God, we know it because he reveals it to us. So the regulative principle says then, all that we do in worshiping God, we should do because God has revealed it to us in his word. That's the argument from the doctrine of God, which leads us third to 2 Timothy 3, verses that I hope we all know well. Verses 16 and 17, where Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the argument from the sufficiency of Scripture. Corporate worship is certainly one of the foremost good works to which we are called. And since Scripture equips us for every good work, then we need not step outside of the Word of God to find out how to worship. Those are three brief scriptural and theological arguments. They're all important. There's more we could say. You can read or think more about it or talk to me more about it. Happy to talk about those. But I want to press on and emphasize that the regulative principle isn't just true, it's good. And here I want to just make two points. The regulative principle safeguards our liberty and the regulative principle safeguards our love. So first, it safeguards our liberty. How can it be that a principle that strikes many people as restrictive is actually liberating? Because submitting our worship to the Word is precisely how we worship God according to a clean conscience. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 positively commands Christians to meet regularly together. So as pastors and leaders, we should expect believers to attend church. That's a basic component of Christian discipleship and obedience. But then if we require believers to do something in that church meeting that they are biblically expected to be at, and that's something that we're requiring them to do is not positively warranted by Scripture, we risk violating their consciences. And this was, in fact, one of the main battlegrounds of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, According to Jonathan Gibson, the Reformation was the ultimate worship war. You've heard about the worship wars. Well, this was the biggie, a war against the idols, a war for the pure worship of God. Calvin especially understood that the elements of worship teach us. They teach us about the nature of God, the nature of salvation. In, In other words, what you do in a worship service isn't neutral. The things that we do on a Sunday morning are always teaching. Either they're teaching our folks about the God who is there, or they're teaching our folks about a God who we have made in our image. And that's why Calvin considered the Roman mass not just suboptimal, not really the best thing you could do. No, he considered it idolatrous to its core because it didn't represent the true God, the God who saves by grace alone, through faith alone. So in other words, the reformers found it liberating to know that in every moment of a church service, you're doing exactly what God calls you to do. And so you are encountering the true God. The regulative principle, they said it doesn't bind us, it sets us free, free from the tyranny of human invention, free from having to do what the latest gurus tell you you must do to make your church service a success. C.S. Lewis famously said, 
The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. Well, I agree with what Derek Thomas said about that quote. He writes, that is what the regulative principle achieves for us in worship, a way of enabling us to be free from the whims of unwarranted structure so that our attention can be given to God. The regulative principle safeguards our liberty. Second, it safeguards our love. Romans 14, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then down in verse 19, he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The New Testament devotes significant space to matters of conscience in passages like Romans 14 and elsewhere. Now, of course, someone can have a wrongly informed conscience. That's true. But that doesn't negate the fact that love means we must never violate a believer's conscience, even if his or her conscience is weak. So since the regulative principle aims at a clean conscience in corporate worship, it trains us in love. It trains us to think about our brothers and sisters and their consciences. After all, this is the regulative principle of corporate worship. So we're really limiting our conversations here to that special time when the church gathers as a body. And I think the most extended treatment of the church's weekly meeting in Scripture is in 1 Corinthians. In chapters 11 to 14, Paul begins that section with some instruction on the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, verse 18, when you come together as a church. And what's his repeated emphasis in chapter 14, where he closes that section? It's edification. He's just going on and on about let all things be done for building up. Now, sadly, as evangelicals, I think we have somehow gotten the impression that 1 Corinthians 13 sort of just dropped out of heaven on its own little hallmark card for us to read at weddings. This sort of beautiful, nice, unoffensive piece of poetry that's it's totally devoid of its context. Actually, it's right here in the middle of this section on what should you do when the church meets. And Paul's point is that you Corinthians are too concerned about who's exercising what gift. It doesn't matter who's doing what up front. The point is that you meet to love. So the regulative principle actually reframes our instincts about corporate worship. It undermines our individualism because it insists that we approach worship not asking the question, what do I feel like doing to worship God, but rather, how has God called us to worship Him together? So it helps us put the corporate back into corporate worship. Worship. It cuts against my personal sense of entitlement. It calls me to be aware of my brother's conscience and my sister's conscience. And so it tells me that worship isn't about me. It's not about my self-expression. It's about love for God in Christ, empowered by His Spirit, and love for all His people. As pastors, as leaders, we have to remember that the choices we make about what to include in a worship service, the elements of worship are formative. They help to train people's hearts in what to love and how to live. Planning a service is part of how we disciple people. 
And so the regulative principle ensures that this liturgical discipleship has an ecclesial shape. In other words, it subtly trains God's people to approach worship not as individuals seeking to have our felt needs met, but as part of a body, a family that meets to serve one another. And so the regulative principle safeguards our love. At the end of the day, you won't find many baseball fans asking their favorite player to sign an umpire's manual. They wouldn't do that. And that's because the regulations aren't the point. The game is. The regulations only serve to safeguard the beauty and the integrity of the game. And so the regulative principle isn't an end in itself. It points beyond. It helps lift our gaze to the glorious, gracious, self-revealing God who has transformed idolaters into true worshipers of his son, the God who now calls us to liberty and love. So, let's play ball.